Vincent's career spans, his writing career spans uh, nearly 60 years. It includes poetry, short stories, novels, biographies, anthologies, criticism. Uh, he's won countless awards. He was Poet Laureate from 2013 to 2015. Um, today we're here to talk about his novel, All This By Chance, and some other things. Uh, we had a, a, another session, wonderful session yesterday at the Bell Tower talking about some other things, but uh, All This By Chance, it's a remarkable book. Uh, it was just released in March, and we are incredibly lucky to have someone like Vincent here in Marlborough to talk to us today. So, ladies and gentlemen, can you please join me in welcoming Vincent? Thank you. Vincent, in, as I say, in a career that spans 60 years, this is only your third novel, which might surprise a few people, and it's your first novel in 20 years. Where have novels fitted in to your writing career? Well, spasmodically, as you can <laughs> uh, say, but um, yes, I don't think of myself sort of in, um, in terms of being a, 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 a poet or a short story writer or whatever but rather as a writer, so that, uh, you know, simply writing whatever happens to uh, have your attention at the time is the important thing, rather than thinking, oh, gosh, only two novels, and if I'd worked harder, I might have three or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's not an issue, uh, and it would be if I wasn't doing anything else in between, you know. But, but there's been a lot of in-between, hasn't there? I mean, Nicholas Reid... Uh, uh, in reviewing it, said it's such a compellingly written and accomplished piece of work that it's surprising he's not written more often in this form. Mm. Looking back on your career, do you think, oh, maybe I wish I might have written or written more? Or no, no. Looking back, it's not a matter of writing more. I wish I'd written less when I pick up some of the books I've done. So. <laughs> <coughs> We talked about that yesterday, and I might just uh, get you to, to repeat one little story. Vincent doesn't look back on his early poetry with great fondness, unfortunately. There's a couple of collections at the start. And uh, can you just briefly retell that story of, of a, uh, a, a poor student and, and a suggestion that you came up with, that she, how she might earn more money? Oh, yes. Uh, well, she's a student I probably owe more to than any other over knew there was this um, <clears throat> very smart but really sort of hard up girl about oh, when I was still in Victoria, this must be 30 years ago and she was saying she couldn't get a holiday job and it was very difficult for her to get fees and so on. So I'd once written an awful book of poetry called Revenance and, um, but it doesn't matter how awful a book is, it will get into a New Zealand library. <laughs> and <coughs> So I said I'd give her... Uh, uh, $10 for every copy she could bring to me. And um, that's why you can't find it in any library. <laughs> but uh, I told that to a librarian once who was horrified, of course, as you can imagine, but I did everyone else a good turn. <laughs> All this by chance, and look, I I'm, appreciate that some of you won't have read it, and it's... Uh, uh, very briefly, it's a novel that spans uh, about three generations of a, a family, crosses the globe. Um, we go from 1947 England through to 
2004, I think, uh, and back in Europe. And then at the very end, it goes back to 1938 in Germany. Um, it reads like a book that might have taken a wee while to write, Vincent. Is that correct? Yes, it's difficult to know what <coughs> is the average time that <laughs> you should put into a novel, but it, it didn't take... I mean, in the 20 years between that and my last novel, it certainly wasn't there. It was really just in the last few years. And I started it as a short story, I think about four years ago, and then more or less forgot about it, and came on it again a couple of years ago and thought, oh, well, I'll expand that and go on with a bit. Where so did the spark come for the short story? For the short story, it was about a time when I was living in Athens, and... Uh, so that, that chapter sort of, in a sense, came first. <clears throat> right. um, there's a Jewish theme uh, threaded through it, obviously, because mm. it involves uh, events that happened during the war and, and the families, uh, well, one side of the family uh, has a Jewish heritage. Can you just tell us a little bit about how you came to tread in that world? Yes, yeah, so I'm very aware that it was... A, a, a tricky area for a writer to take on. I was very disappointed that the publisher used the word Holocaust on the cover. I wouldn't presume for a minute to try and write about a sort of the Holocaust in a serious um, or proprietorial way because I've got no right to. And as well as that, there have been simply dozens, hundreds of interesting and good bits of fiction written about the Holocaust by Jewish people particularly and so on. So that was the biggest challenge in doing the book. I knew the story had to take in certain events or certain periods and characters uh, with connections with the Holocaust. But the way I regard it is what I'm dealing with are just four or five characters, New Zealanders, who are also <coughs> Jewish. And so it was not saying or claiming to say anything larger about history than just look at the experience of these few people. But it also seems to me that as long as there is one Jew in New Zealand, the Holocaust is also a New Zealand story. You can't get away from it. But I hated the idea as if I was trying to, you know, take on board a historical experience that racially and every other way I've got no right to claim. So um, th that, in fact, is uh, the, the reason why the, there's one scene, there has to be one scene which is in uh, Ravensbrook, the women's camp. And, but you see that through, and it has to be seen through the eye of a prisoner, but the character who tells that is actually um, a Jehovah's Witness because the Jehovah's Witnesses were given a very bad time by the Nazis. And I didn't know much about them before I started doing this book and finished up with an enormous respect for them, that they were the only, the only women in the camp, and similarly in the men's camps, who could have walked out just like that. All they had to do was go and sign a bit of paper to say that they didn't regard Hitler as antichrist. And not one woman left the camp of hundreds, hundreds there. And many died sort of in, in the way you expect in, in the camps and so on, simply because of this principle they had. And they were greatly respected and admired by uh, the other inmates 
in the, in the camps. They were incorruptible. Um, and so that's why I thought, if I use this, at least I can say, well, yes, you say, what right have I got to write about a Jehovah's Witness? But it didn't seem quite appropriating in the same way it would have been to pretend I was looking at something from a Jewish mind. So that was, I suppose, technically the most, Im and em emotionally the most important decision I made was that, and it let me off the hook, frankly, of anyone coming along and saying, what right have you got to be talking about this? People have, have, has anyone come? Oh, yes, yes, there have, has been one review that really had me on about this. Of uh, One review said it's not Jewish enough, and another said it's too Jewish. So, uh, And some <laughs> people have said you've got no right as a non-Jew to be writing uh, about no, this? No, 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 they haven't quite, uh, they haven't put it like that. But that was clearly the, uh, the implication, and I can quite understand that point of view, but I really did sort of try and take care to avoid that particular charge. Right. <coughs> when you were growing up, there was a Jewish family in your street. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, I suppose that's what's uh, set off. I mean, it's not in... Uh, my initial interest, to put it that way, yes, uh, when I was a kid growing up in Westmere, where those streets, uh, those early scenes, the Auckland scenes are set, um, there was a Jewish family who lived at the end of the road. They were very quiet, didn't have much to do with any other neighbours. And as uh, a young boy, I found this sort of fascinating in the way anyone very strange who's a neighbour fascinates you more than anyone else does. Um, and I don't know what became of them, but there was a, an old lady in the house as, and, a, a, well, from an eight-year-old or whatever it was point of view, an, an attractive girl of about 12, and um, and they always stuck in my mind as being not typical of of our street. And they got on with everybody and the neighbours all talked and that sort of thing, but there was a sort of a reservation about them. And I suppose that beginning with the story and setting it in that uh, that street where where the family lives and so on goes back to that. But that is merely almost incidental because I'm not trying to talk about that family. I don't know about that family. All I know is their name. I've got no idea what became of them. But I suppose that spark uh, of, of interest was there. And then, of course, a bit later, when you found out all the dreadful things that were coming out after the war, um, you know, just at the stage, just before I went to school and so on, but you'd see them in the newspapers and hear growing up sort of talking about the revelations of the camps and so on, naturally that fascination became even more when you thought, why would it happen to those people mm. and not to the rest of us? And it was all sort of that muddled childish thinking which had gone underground for a very long time and <laughs> until finally I started writing yes. this. Now you mentioned there's a, in thinking about all this, there's a poem that you, you thought you might read now. Oh yes, this is just before I started writing uh, the novel and it's just a little poem but it's a, a, about a very touching anecdote I read in a, um, a biography of a Hungarian uh, Jewish writer. And in the big march that everyone knows about at the end of the war when they were just marching people from the camps and so on, he tells a story of when they were marching along and they were passing a compound that was full of circus animals who'd been <coughs> impounded and these animals started going through their tricks 
and so on, they saw people passing and putting their uh, paws through and so on. And he said there was a, a sense of almost, not identification, but a sort of some kind of rapport between the animals and these people being on the death marches. It always stuck in my mind, is what a vivid image mm -hmm. that is. So uh, this is a, a, a short poem, so uh, it's called Road from the Camp. A story here I wish I hadn't heard. A row of prisoners stitched with yellow stars marching a summer road, oddly surprised to pass a compound lined with circus bears. With creatures of diverse and mottled kind, remnants from simple entertainments lost. Both sides look up confused. The memories stir, the bears perform their stunts for favours tossed once their way by children, parents, scraps for begging paws. Those mime displays a hundred years back, was it? Thinking how they and these once met in civil ways. This is the story of the final show, the trawl of stars from village and from city. The bears withdraw their paws conclude their dance, watching the humans pass with almost pity. Mm. Thanks, Vincent. The book spans uh, the world, or, or a lot of it anyway, Auckland, London, Greece, Germany and Poland. Um, you've lived in many of these places and presumably were able to draw from your experiences. You went to Greece at one stage in the 60s, wasn't it, uh, to live, but that was curtailed. Yes, uh, that was the year of the, of the revolution. So <clears throat> after the, uh, the, the, the coup of the colonels, you could only um, renew your permit twice. So that meant after six months, you simply had to get out. So otherwise, I'd have int had intended staying on there. But So uh, it was a, a remarkably interesting time to be there. Um, but there was no question of being allowed to, you know, go beyond your six months. So your glorious Mediterranean experience in tan that yeah. might have resulted... Well, I never <coughs> quite had the torso for those dreams. <laughs> <but> <laughs> the one place that you hadn't lived uh, yeah. that does uh, form one of the, the sort of chapters in this book is Africa. So... How did you write that without having experienced it? Well, there's a, a lovely sentence of Catherine Mansfield's when she said, we writers tell the truth as only the liar can. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a matter of, of trying to sort of pull the wool. I'm so, in a way, sorry you mentioned that, because <laughs> uh, it, it was the one bit where I had to, uh, couldn't draw on actual experience of of what things smelled like and so on. So you're dependent then on, on research and a lot of people would say, well, you shouldn't write about a place you haven't been to, but uh, I had no choice in that case. And but, but you have, um, it, it's, the, the, uh, it, it's set in a, a mission in, yes. in Africa. Yeah. And someone did come up to you afterwards who'd been on a similar yes. mission yes. and said how authentic it was. So you must have done pretty yes, well. Yes, and, and asked me which mission it was, so I was caught <laughs> out. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, did you, I mean, just diverting briefly, because you have lived many places overseas throughout your career on fellowships and, and, and various other times, and this book is a truly international one in, in the respect of how many countries that it's set in. Have you ever considered leaving New Zealand for good and, and being a writer based somewhere else? No, no. For better or worse, um, if you're born in New Zealand, you stay a New Zealander, it seems to me. And I, I mean, I've got a very good friend, probably my closest friend, who's been in Paris for 50 years. And, uh, you know, most people think he was French. But he says himself, he knows all the time. He's a bit of a fraud if people think he's taken for a local and so on. And many people don't think that way. There's no reason why they should. But just personally, I feel if a place you come from, in a way it shapes you in a way we can't do much about the colour of our eyes, the height we are, and, uh, and sort of that's what we're born with and stuck with. And uh, in spite of all the reservations you might have about the country you're in, as far as I'm concerned anyway, that is where uh, your emotional centre lies. And um, unless you're driven by something that erases that or is stronger, it makes sense to stay there. Plenty of New Zealanders and artists have gone overseas. Catherine Mansfield, yeah. who you've written extensively yeah, yeah. about, you know, yeah. she did that though, didn't she? Oh, but, uh, yes, but I mean, she had to. She went, remember, in 1907 or 8, and it, it's inconceivable to think she might have stayed here. But now people have that choice, and, uh, you know, more and more New Zealand artists and writers are interestingly are drawn particularly to Germany. Mm. There are quite a lot of New Zealand artists and so on in, in Berlin. Um, and that's absolutely fine. I think each person just decides for themselves. But as far as I was concerned, it wasn't really a contest. Mm. It's a much smaller world now. It's much yeah. easier to travel. Sure. And, and the characters in your mm. book do travel. Now, one of the characters um, is, is the granddaughter of the, of the, the characters that this story starts with. You had a, a reading, Vincent, that you were... Um, that oh, yes. This, this is when the... Um, the, the, the gist of it, it's not giving the story away, but uh, uh, what you need to know is that this is the granddaughter of a New Zealander who just after the war, uh, a, a young man who wasn't in the army but had gone to England after the war, had married uh, a young woman who seemed English, but in fact she was like those kinder transport children. And quite a number of those children who went from Germany um, to England weren't placed with Jewish families were brought up by, uh, and, and this girl was brought up by a Quaker family and her Jewishness meant nothing to her. And it was only when they suddenly had to look after a, an aunt who was Polish, uh, German speaking, and so on, they realized there was this whole background they had to bring to New Zealand with them. And then gradually the family's influenced by this in various ways. And this is the granddaughter going back to what was Breslau and is now Roslov, uh, trying to sort of see what does it mean to go back to where my uh, grandparents came from. Uh, and just explain yes. where Breslau is, oh, is oh, yes. and, it's, and yes. it's how it's changed countries. Yes, Breslau used to be um, Germany, and um, Hitler called it Fortress Breslau because 
if Breslau fell, the whole of Germany would go. Um, and then after the war with the redefining uh, of boundaries, it became part of Poland um, and was is, is now Roslav. And so that's why uh, it's this curious hybrid place where the architecture, the churches, all sorts of things are so German and Baroque, and yet it's intensely Polish as well at the moment. Uh, I shouldn't say at the moment. It, it, it just is. But... Um, and it's caught up, of course, in these various debates going on in, 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 in Poland at the moment. And this girl, she's in her uh, 20s, she goes and finds the synagogue, <coughs> which, curiously enough, uh, it's one of the few synagogues that is still standing in this part of Europe, uh, one called the White Stork, where the, the, the Jews of Breslau, who were an, an incredibly cultivated people, they were German-speaking, so, many of them brought up speaking Yiddish, but they were German-speaking, very well-educated, and in fact, Roslav University has got, I think, nine Nobel Prizes, and seven of them were by, uh, won by Jews, uh, which, of course, the city is naturally very proud of, but it's interesting that they were German-speaking Jews who got them, including a particularly interesting story, I think, is... The man who invented chlorine gas for the Germans in the First War was a Jew, and his wife, who was also a very eminent chemist, committed suicide the first week the gas was used mm. in the war. So, you know, it's, it's an example of that extraordinary complexity the minute you start scratching the surface about anything in Europe. But anyway, this is when the girl uh, uh, goes to... Uh, uh, the synagogue, and in the courtyard there is where they were uh, herded together before they left. And, of course, the thing about many of the uh, Breslau Jews, they just couldn't believe. They, many of them were... Uh, most of them were still uh, practising their faith, but they couldn't believe that as cultivated Germans, anything could really happen to them. And so she walks out again into the open air to the walls raising, uh, rising on three sides of her, the lift of the synagogue across from where she stands. It no longer bothers her, the confusion of one imagined building in mind, the reality of another in front of her. Her accepting, she thinks, that is what must define me. The mess of it all is what I am. To be here now in the square of the courtyard that struck her is so like the bottom of a well rising several stories to that other square of now sharp blue sky. Where they had been instructed to assemble, those who in absurd optimism and incomprehension still remained in the city to be rounded up. She looks at the overlap of one cobblestone against another, the window ledges exactly as they must have seen them, the rise of the flat pillars against the painted wall. They, the family, their hands holding, touching, comforting, she supposes, or perhaps not. She had read how the older ones at times like this, the devout, the ones with certainty of more than fear, already would be moving their lips, speaking the words louder even than that, and the guards amused at their presumption, 
the joke that prayer might slow so much as a child's shuffle on the march that would soon begin to the rail lines and the station. Once the timetables were set in stone, Esther's own lips now move as she says their names. Chaim, Elizabeth, Sarah, Hannah, Ephraim. She closes her eyes, leans her head back against the wall. She says them over again. There is nothing more she can do. The closest she will ever be to them. Yet to say so much as was is surely to say it in the present. The past is here or not at all. Thanks, Vincent. I mean, it, it's remarkable that, um, the kind of crossover between that passage and, and this story with um, Diana Witchell. I don't know if, if some of you have attended Diana's uh, sessions here. And again, the stories of how uh, Diana's family <laughs> were taken to extermination camps and, and her, her father escaped, etc. So you've been to Brazil, haven't you? Yes, yes. Yeah. And... Um, as you say, it's a, it's a remarkable place. But, I mean, how did it strike you? How much of that history still resonates around that area? Well, I think, for one thing, there's the number of Jews in, in Roslov had run to a couple hundred, probably. The, the big liberal uh, synagogue was naturally destroyed with all the others. This one was actually one of the... the uh, more conservative ones, and I, I've no idea why it survived. Mm. And there are a small number of people still go to that. I had the good luck of um, writing ahead and arranging to to meet someone um, who might explain something of the, the Jewish history of the city and so on. And that person couldn't be there that day, and there was a, a rabbi instead, a rabbi who'd spent uh, quite a number of years in America, and uh, he took their place and he was rather aggressive at first he asked a perfectly reasonable question he said what do you want from us <laughs> and uh, which isn't a good way to begin with <laughs> someone you're hoping uh, can, but af after a while he was he, he couldn't have been more helpful and um, even sort of took me into the uh, they don't use the big part of the synagogue now but a, a smaller room where he took out the scrolls and chanted some of it for me so I'd know what it was like and and so on, and uh, so I, I, I felt rather privileged that he'd done this. But you could tell that he was he was uneasy as a Jew still in Poland. Not um, not that there is any distinction, any way, sort of political, politically, but it's just in the air, I think. Mm. But then I might be being unfair to Polish people saying that. Mm -hmm. And so I think what you'd say is that for some people, it's still important. For others. It's the past, and it, you know, it simply doesn't matter. Yeah. But he found it. This uh, the rabbi found it extremely odd that someone from New Zealand and said a very curious thing. He said, "But isn't sort of New Zealand like Ireland?" He said, "The countries that treat Jews well." <laughs> isn't that a curious thing to say? And I felt almost on the point of saying, well, there were never many there to be a problem, <laughs> you know, but, but of course didn't. Yeah. Yeah. While you visi visited uh, yeah. uh, the city, you didn't visit the camp that you write about, did you? No, I didn't, didn't want and to. And can you uh, explain a bit about your thoughts on that? 
Well, there's an extraordinary book came out a couple of years ago called If This Is a Woman by Anne, Anne Helm, which is an 800-page, very gruelling book about the history of Raven's book, which was <coughs> the women's camp. And if you read that, anything you want to know or need to know is is there. And I had been, you know, like lots of New Zealanders travelling. I'd been to I'd been to Dachau and so on. And but I thought I don't want to get caught in that trap of what I call necro tourism, of where if you've been to one camp, what can you possibly get by going to two or three or five? You've been to a place where the atrocities happened. You pick up in the most trivial way, finally, the enormity of what took place for people. And beyond that, it becomes, in just in my view anyway, unless you're a Jewish person, it becomes a sort of voyeurism. And so there was no need to go there and to say, oh, well, exact, I know exactly where the train lines were or something. So what? I didn't need to know that. Mm -hmm. So that was just my view about, yeah. about visiting uh, <coughs> places that carry this enormous uh, historical burden of, uh, of violence and so on that you can do nothing about, so don't feed off it. One of the major themes in this book, and it's, it's been a theme in a, a lot of your writing, is about families and the relations between children and their parents, and in this case, you know, the, mm. the grandchildren as well. And the title of your book is, is All This By Chance. I mean, families are the ultimate all this by chance. Mm. You never get to choose them, do you? No. That's why it's a... I've no idea what the title means, actually. <laughs> <coughs> because everything that happens in your own life, you can argue, oh, this is chance that's happening now. It was chance that I met my wife, or it's a chance I got run over or something. But at the same time, there's always more to the story. Or... You can say, well, there's one chance sets off another chance. But if you believe that, you're then talking about fate mm. and so on. In other words, it doesn't pay to think about it too much. <laughs> How's chance treated you in your life, Vincent? Um, well, it's got a bit to answer for. <laughs> <laughs> but there have been extraordinarily good bits, haven't there? It's yeah. been a fortunate career from a literary perspective. Yes, and, and mine was a, an extraordinarily fortunate generation. Those of us who were born just before or during the war or just afterwards, that was the, maybe not economically, that came later, the favoured generations, but we were the privileged ones. that we, we were between wars. We had the benefits of, you know, free education and all these sort of things, so... Um, so I always think that many of us in the room have been treated well by chance of being <laughs> born in New Zealand at that time. Indeed. Another theme that runs throughout the book is, is secrets, if you like. Um, mm. Things that have happened in the past and that the next generation might know about but often doesn't know about. Are some things better left unrevealed and not shared with children? Again, <coughs> everyone has <coughs> his or her own idea about that. I don't believe that personally. I don't think you should tell, necessarily uh, tell children that their 
grandfather did time for getting close, close to a housemate or something. Um, I, uh, there are some family stories you don't... Although, if that happened to me, I'd love to know. But, uh, <laughs> um, but whether we like it or not, we're also shaped by secrets. And often the way we're treated or an attitude... You think of your own childhood, you think of some attitude, your parents suddenly says, no, that's not on, and it surprises you because it's not what you expect. And somewhere behind that there's a story you never know why that particular attitude was shaped as it was. And so you can't get far in fiction of any kind without coming across things that some people know about and others don't. Mm. And so secrets are, the, I think, the, the, the wellspring that drives fiction. But, I mean, in, in real life anyway, we dig too deeply into our family history and perhaps there are things that we'd rather we didn't discover and know. I suppose so. Yeah, I get a bit sceptical sometimes of people who are going into their history, family history, desperately hoping they're going to be the Duke in secret or something, you know. <laughs> and <coughs> people can be so boring about their ancestors, can't they? <laughs> and they're never as interesting to anyone else as they are to yourself. Mm. <coughs> but that doesn't alter the fact that it's interesting to know about certain aspects of your family that often someone's dead and you find out something about them or you find out something that would have influenced them and so on. Um, and, for example, I had a, an uncle who, uh, or at least a removed, who committed suicide in Wellington because he was a homosexual and this was found out in the 1930s. And I, only, I didn't ever hear that from my parents. I heard it from other relatives after they were dead. Mm. You know, and I'm, I think every family has something like that. And uh, the good thing about secrets, I think, is that after a time, none of them are very shameful, mm. but they become more interesting. There's a wonderful line in, in the book, the past like an avalanche, the past always waiting to happen. Yes. And, and I guess uh, increasingly people are, as you say, searching out to find out about their past and their genealogy and, and mm. people now taking DNA tests to That's find right, out. Yes. Exactly. You've had a... Was it Helen, your wife, has yes, had one yes, of those, hasn't yes, she? Yes, yes. And what did she find out? Well, she had a grandmother who was adopted and then found out that she was an Ashkenazi Jew. <laughs> and um, I had a very far more unfortunate experience. I was desperately hoping that, you know, there'd be something interesting in my DNA and it came out 97% Irish. So, <laughs> <laughs> so if you can live with a disappointment like that... <laughs> I just, just quickly on that point, you told me a really interesting story the other day about that because your, your, you know, your family, you come over here, O'Sullivan, your Catholic family. Tell me about your uncle and about how he adapted <laughs> yes. things. Yes, well, my uncle's son's in the audience, so I'll have to be careful about this. <laughs> no, I was just trying to explain how, with quite a lot of uh, Irish families, you're Sullivan or O'Sullivan or you're Donoghue or O'Donoghue, and. Uh, how this has absolutely no resonance, resonance at all for us now, but if you go back a couple of generations, uh, it involves you in sort of a number of, of highly emotional situations. Yeah. And what happened yeah. with your family? Yeah. One of, one of, your well, uncle changed it, it, his name, yes, essentially. Yes, but it, it, it made absolutely no difference in the relationship in the family. Yeah. But I think it was, you know, perhaps for business reasons or something. And, of course, in Ireland itself, 
it's it's almost used indiscriminately. Whether you know, he d- uh, he dropped the O, didn't he? Yeah. He became. But Sullivan in Ireland, they often don't Sullivan. use it anyway. Yeah. So it's 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 really not a significant issue now. Although it was at that time, yeah, a hundred years ago. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Just talking about secrets, though. I mean, are there secrets or th- not secrets? Um, are there things in your past that you have chosen not to share with your children? My or would uh, most <laughs> I was going to say my school C results. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if they asked, would you always be up front? Or like Stephen, uh, uh, you know, one of the main yeah. characters and all this by chance, would you choose not to reveal everything? I think anyone who th- says I can reveal anything at all about my life either isn't telling the truth or is a very dull person. <laughs> you know, I think everyone has secrets or not even secrets, but you know those, you think of m- dreadful moments of embarrassment and so on. Everyone has those. So there, there's no such thing as a life without secrets. Mm. For example, there's still a secret in this book that whether you get it or not, it, you can read the book and not get it, but it explains. I, I, I put it there as a secret. I didn't get it. You had yeah. to explain it to me. Oh, no, so no, that no. says a no, lot no, about me, no, isn't no. it? No, a- a- actually why Eva does commit suicide. Yeah. 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 And that's yeah. The, it's yeah. Eva is, is yeah. the, um, the character who was sent mm. from Germany to England, raised yeah. by a Catholic family, yeah. uh, sorry, Quaker family, and yeah. uh, was only later revealed yeah. to the Jewish w- background. W- what I meant by that, Mike, was not that I was playing a game and hiding a secret, not at all. Mm. What I meant, there is a secret there that she knows but the rest of her family never know. Yes. Yeah. And that, that secret kind of, and, and the story behind her suicide, yeah. it, it, it just off on a quick tangent, because I, I, see, I think we've got the John Mulgan book here. You did a biography yeah, of yeah, John Mulgan, yeah. one of New Zealand's most famous authors. Uh, there's always been a bit of a, an uncertainty and unknown and secrets about how he committed or why he committed suicide, isn't it? Mm. Did you, when you were researching it, ever get to the bottom of that? No, and, and, and not entirely. Um, I just very much dislike biographies if they're dealing with someone who took their own uh, life who speculate. You've got no right to speculate on a suicide. All you can do is, if there's hard evidence there, if there's a note that says, yeah, it was, you know, I couldn't pay the mortgage or something, that's fine. But with Mulgan, there are still areas that aren't altogether clear. And yet um, there was even, in fact, <coughs> just a couple of years ago, someone's trying to resurrect uh, a story that was around at the end of the war that Mulgan didn't did commit suicide, but it was the Greek underground resistance that set up the suicide to look like that and so on. But that's been well and truly gone o- over and there's there's no truth of that at all. But <clears throat> he left rather ambiguous notes when he died and um, so you can't say... he was a de- These days he'd be called a depressive, I think, uh, or at least bipolar. Um, and But they didn't even have the word for it in the 30s when he was a young man. Just before he died, he had malaria, and the treatment that was given, the drug that was used at that time, they found out later, was a depressive. Um, he was politically enormously disappointed. He wrote to his father just a couple of weeks before he died. He said, you know, we were so, had so much buoyant hope 
as young men in the 30s. But he said, now it's the same old men will be doing the same old things. Being in Greece, he was very close to the resistance and had fought uh, with them during the war. And then suddenly Churchill comes in and says, no, these are the communists, we are now fighting them. So he'd lost faith in British politics as well. Uh, he didn't really want to come back to his wife. So there are half a dozen things there that you might think one of them might have been enough for some temperament. But for Mulgans, which was very uh, complex indeed, um, all these things you have to acknowledge as possibilities, but you've got no right at all to say this is why. We just have to believe him. He says, there's a very curious thing he says in a letter to his commanding officer at the end, that I'd have had myself decently killed in battle in, with the resistance, but that's not the way an officer should behave. <laughs> So that shows he was already thinking of it. Mm. Yeah. And in fact, the, it was the day after he posted his copy of, Man, of um, Report on Experience, posted that to his wife. He'd got his last bit of writing out of the way, and so he was free to kill himself. Vincent, there's a lovely passage in the book, um, which a, a, a story that I'd never heard about... When someone dies in the family, telling the bees about this. Would you yeah. like to read that passage? Yes, for I'll us? just. Uh, I'm interested to know how many of you sort of have come across that uh, it was uh, in England uh, and perhaps other parts of the UK. I don't know of t telling the bees when someone dies. Many of you. Few people. Yeah, have, some of you. Yeah. We hardly. Hardly hear of it now, do, do we? But it was really quite a widespread thing that if in uh, particularly Cornwall, I know, I know it was definitely there because I've read about it there, um, that if someone died and you're on a farm and, or you're a beekeeper, you had to tell the bees about the death of someone they knew because otherwise they'd get very uneasy and the hives would get upset. So someone was always sort of commissioned to go off and say to the hives that so-and-so's died. And that went on right until the, uh, you know, the early, uh, in, into the 1900s. Uh, and obviously it never happened in New Zealand because I've never, or at least I've never heard of it in New Zealand, have you? But if you speak, uh, speak to people, say, whose grandparents might have been in, uh, East Anglia or something, they'll say, oh, yes, I think I have heard, heard about that. And so I was using that notion of the, quite simply, the uh, Esther, the same girl who, who went to the synagogue, she goes to visit the relative of this, uh, the Jehovah's Witness woman um, because she and the Jewish grandmother were very close in the camp together and had both been in Auckland and, and so on, but don't worry about all that. Um, and when she's on this farm, she meets this young chap, Milan, who's a, an English Czech fellow who's working in the Blue Mountains uh, as, over, as his OE, and he tells her about this strange nephew of the um, Jehovah's Witness woman going to tell the bees about the death. 
because the old lady had been living on the farm. And without sort of trying to make too much of it, it's meant to be sort of a, one of those sort of moments you can't explain rationally, but not going so far as pretending it's a mystical moment or something, but just a strange occurrence when something in the air changes. So in a sense it gives Esther freedom even hearing about But anyway, I'll just re read uh, that bit. Sorry. And so Milan described for her it for her as they sat in the darkening room, the unsettling vividness as she imagined it, the tall man and the burring hives, and the grey and dappled barrier of the bush in front of him, the glare of his shirt and what seemed the afternoon's hot empty paws. He had now removed his hat and placed it on one of the iron spikes that supported the wire-stranded fence, where he crouched for a moment, lit a match which he placed against what seemed, from where Milan sat, a kind of small funnelled can, and that the man then held as he approached one of the hives and took a covering board from the top, which he laid on the ground. Already there was the rising blur of the smoked bees darting, flickering, as if the weave of a fiercely thickening veil, through which the man now knelt on one knee to put his hand into the hive's lower level on its shallow platform. Milan watched in his ignorance what seemed both methodical and crazed. The man standing again and placing what the farmhand only later learned was the queen against his forehead, her hive responding in a gusted whirl about the solid figure and the man speaking as if addressing them. There was a sense almost of reverence in the way he stood stock still with his hands now held in front of him, the way you see men standing at the side of a grave. The strange stalling formality of that, as the dark fluent stain as it seemed on the shoulder of his shirt swelled, the bees compacting and spreading down his sleeve and across his back. Milan standing now on the veranda and appalled, compelled by what he witnessed, the blurred seething fabric of the air, and heard the sound like some distant implacable machinery is the only thought that came to him, a mad enough thought in itself. That man is dressed in bees, it is his sound as well as theirs. And then the man stooped again and rebuilt the stories of the hive, and it was as if an apparition, an apparition had been withdrawn the extraordinariness of what he witnessed remaining with him still, an occurrence seemingly cut off from any notion of time. For he had no idea of how long all this had taken, or how brief it may have seen, it been. It was something discreet and entire, apart from anything else he knew or might imagine. He did not expect e Esther, expect anyone, to believe it was quite as he had said, a standing li living pillar that was both calm and fury, and then later, the man walking back across the paddock, the burr of the bees behind him, returning and settling to their hive. Esther imagining it so vividly, its strangeness excited her, the seeping across the man's back like a frothing lung, and yet the stillness somehow of it too, even beautiful to think of, even that, the making and unpicking of a living shroud. She said, I don't know if I can take it in, make sense of it. 
as if another story went on within it that eluded her, an awful exhilaration as she thought of it. And there, no, to hell with it, she said, laughing, not wanting to laugh. She took Milan's hand from her knee and knelt on the warm leather of the couch and moved towards him, coming to get him. God, she thought, if only it wasn't words we have to work through all the time. Her fingers found the buttons of his shirt and touched the warmth of his throat. Fucking bees, she said, pressing her mouth against his ear. And that's the beginning of the love story. <laughs> Thanks, Vincent. There's no beekeepers or apiarists in the audience, are there? I think it would be a fabulous ritual to kind of keep going, whatever it means and whatever uh, with the reality of it. Um, the dedication in this book mm. to Fiona, tell us who that is and what that, what's behind that. Oh, well, there's nothing much behind it. It's just that's Fiona Kidman, the, uh, the writer who's a good friend of mine and um, a person I admire for her fiction. But also it's nice to have the chance to say I admire her so much. I can't think of any other New Zealand writer who's done as much for writers in I mean, not only serving on committees and Creative New Zealand and that sort of thing, but in sort of a quiet way, uh, helping younger writers and so on. And it's, uh, it was just a way of uh, sort of saying thank you to her for, for what she's done for writers. Yeah. Um, the reviews of All This By Chance have been pretty amazing. Uh, a couple of them have mentioned that it requires close concentration. Um, how difficult is it to kind of tread that line between, as a poet, and writing how you want, and yet making it accessible, if you like, to, to an audience? Yeah. How, how much uh, thinking goes into that? Yeah, well, I, I think it's accessible enough as a story. Yeah, oh, incredibly uh, so. And so on. Um, <clears throat> I suppose the thing that disappoints me a bit, and it may be my fault in the telling of it, is that whenever people or reviewers, they get onto, this, onto the Jewish aspect, where there's other aspects of it that interest me. Yeah. There's two very nasty young New Zealanders in it, or one particularly, <laughs> one called Fergus, and so on, um, who, who was involved with uh, one of the family. But he and the girl he takes up with, another New Zealander in Italy, make me think so much of New Zealanders I've known, at least of my generation some time back, who were spectacularly awful people, I think. And they regarded, regarded life as... Nothing wrong for regarding life as an adventure, but that life was there as, as a spectacle for them, and they were to be part of it, and they had absolutely... And I'm not, I hope it doesn't make me sound like a preacher, but they had sort of no moral compass about anything as long as things were going good at a certain time. And so they'd go to Athens and then they'd go on to Rome and they'd finish up in Budapest and, you know, so on. And life was just as moving from place to place, having a good time, and somehow we're special and don't have to accept responsibilities for other places or people because we're New Zealanders. Have you known people like that? Yeah. Well, perhaps I'm the only one I have and they don't exist. But <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I was trying to get sort of something of that kind of character is about how, how New Zealanders can on occasion sort of cut a swathe of moral chaos <laughs> <laughs> through a place and, um, and without being too heavy about it or anything. Mm. But 
<coughs> they were also, as you can imagine, good fun to write about and um, could say all sorts of things. If I said in private life, you'd think, what a dreadful person. But, I mean... it's um, the joy of being a novelist, isn't Exactly. It, you've, yeah. you've, you've got a, a mouthpiece for your inner self. Yeah. <laughs> and, the, and this character, Fergus, who um, yeah. will say less than pleasant yeah. in many ways, can, we, can you just tell us what your wife uncharitably <laughs> said about... Yes. She said, there's no need for you to ever write an autobiography. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you mustn't ever quote her. Oh no, about that. <laughs> it doesn't go out of this room. Okay. <laughs> okay. Look, um, spin-off labelled it all this by mm. chance is the best New Zealand novel of 2018, and Nicholas Reed on stuff said it's it, it is as outstanding a novel as has been produced in this country in the last ten years. That's high praise, nice praise. How much do you read reviews and how much weight do you give to them? I suppose you give them plenty of weight when they're good. <laughs> yes, yeah. Um, I don't believe writers who say they don't care about reviews. But it is possible. I do believe writers when they say, but they don't make too much difference once you've got over the, either the, the pleasantness of a good review or, um, you know, the irritation of a... Of a not appreciative review. Mm. So in other words, yes, of course they matter, but they matter primarily, when the chips are down, they matter primarily because they affect sales. Mm. And I remember um, an editor of the Listener, uh, or at least a, an editor, told me once years ago that, I don't know if it's the same now, uh, this must be 20 years, that the difference between a good and a bad review in the Listener could be the difference of Eight to ten thousand sales. Wow. Yeah. Whoa. Because you see, the, if you can imagine somebody who lives at Pucky Pucky or somewhere like that, they get the listener, it's the only place they will ever see a serious review. And if they're people who like reading, and the, they will naturally think, oh, that one book interests me, or that one doesn't, they don't think much of that. So you can see how, because of the geography and the spread of us in New Zealand, it can make it might make no difference. We live in a city, but it makes a lot of difference if that's the only place you see a review. Sure, I mean you've been a literary critic, so you <coughs> know the effect also yeah. of of criticism. I mean, if it's bad, you just have to accept it gracefully, though. Well, pretend to accept it gracefully. Right. Yes. <laughs> Yes. Uh, have you have you developed a thick skin, or you probably haven't had many bad reviews, Vincent? So you've never had to consider it. Got an hour or two. <laughs> we'll uh, we'll leave we'll leave out one particular stout uh, with yeah. a former uh, per, a person who's been to the Melbourne Book Festival in the past. But anyway, yes. Um, but generally, you've had good reviews. Yeah, I think think reasonable yeah. ones. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's a fantastic book. Look, ladies and gentlemen, we've got a few minutes. If there are questions from the audience, please take the opportunity to ask Vincent anything while he's here before he disappears back to Dunedin. And and the I was going to say the I was going to make a joke at Dunedin's expense as I hear the rain pouring down on the roof. So that's not going to work, <laughs> is it? But please, are there any questions from the audience in the front, madam? Africa, we 
Sure. Quite a while about who was entitled to write about yeah. what men shouldn't write about woman characters. I know. Yeah. Can't write I mean, but that's rather limiting, isn't it? Yeah, I don't believe it for a minute. Um, my attitude is about any writer: write about anything you want to, and if you don't do it well, well, people are entitled to say so, and they don't have to agree with it or like it if if if, if you do it badly, but. Don't, for goodness sake, ever accept that there is something that you're not allowed to write about because you're into censorship immediately. And self-censorship is, is really no, no better than accepting it from someone else. Although, as I said, I was aware myself that if I'd written about a, a point of view from a Jewish point of view about the camps, I, I was free to do that. No one has got the right to say you shouldn't do it, but I think it would be a very foolish thing to do. Yeah. And aesthetically, uh, quite as well as morally, I think you're, you're letting yourself in for a fall, you're riding for a fall. Other questions out here? Madam. Uh, back to the secret about Eva. Can you hear Vincent? About Eva? About Eva. Yes. Yes, and why she committed suicide. Yes. And I don't know why. Oh, good, there's someone else yeah. that didn't. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, 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 it's not hidden away as a puzzle. Is it as simple as that, or is it something that Miss McGovern or Ruth, her aunt, and No, no, you don't have to get a scalpel to find it or anything. No, you can pop down here afterwards and ask me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, no, I'd hate to think it was, you know, you never got the right to play games, uh, you know, and think, oh, this is like James Joyce's wife records that she would would come into the room sometimes when he was writing uh, Finnegan's Wake and so on, here and laughing and so on, and she'd say, what's going on? And he'd say... A hundred years to work this one out. <laughs> so there's nothing like that. It's just part of the story that isn't necessarily easily picked up because the other characters in the book can't refer to it because they don't know it. So we'll talk anyway. Yeah, yeah. Barbie. I read your book about six weeks ago, and I'm now finishing <laughs> if you have to read it again because you didn't know what it was about, it's my fault <laughs> entirely. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah, if you had there, to read, there's no excuse, uh, really, uh, to make a book more difficult than you want to. If it's a difficult story or a difficult situation, sometimes you have to. If I read a, a novel, for example, that has anything to do with finance and money, I have to read it again. You know, because there are some, obviously the person knows a hell of a lot more about technical things, uh, uh, I mean, that uh, than I do. But no, if you had to read it again because you were puzzled, no, that's my fault. But uh, I, I hope it isn't, I hope other people didn't hear you say that, really. <laughs> Look, I, I can say it's a book that um, deserves at least one reading. It's a fantastic book Vincent. Um, Elizabeth Alley started her review of it by saying 
Is there anyone else like Vincent O'Sullivan? And we'll end this session by answering that by saying no, and he's unique, and we're incredibly lucky to have had him here in Marlborough for the book festival. Thanks, Vincent, and please join me in thanking him. Well, thank, thank you, Mark. Thank, thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> and Vincent's going to be here for the next wee while. Please do come and see him, have a chat, and, and have books signed by him.